Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today, I'm talking to Susie Ballantyne. Susie is an applied psychologist who currently offers research and consultation, cognitive behavioral coaching, and psychologically informed leadership development. And I'm really thrilled to have Susie on the podcast as her experience spans over 20 years, has taken her around the world and involves a healthy mix of research and practice that I find very enviable. So thank you for joining us today, Susie. You're welcome. Lovely to be here. Uh, There are so many things I want to ask you about, but it seems sensible to start at the beginning of your career. And I understand from your website that your career started with working in high stress environments with the military. So can you tell us all a little bit about how you got started with that? Yes, well, uh, I was very fortunate when I started studying because I had an industrial placement and it was through that at Surrey University that I ended up working in uh, what's now DSTL, Defence Science Technology Laboratory. Um, and I was working in um, air systems design, so very ergonomics, cognitive cockpits, uh, looking at how pilots form situational awareness, um, which went on to a sort of 15-year career uh, in the MOD, um, which was less about cognition and, and ergonomics and much more about looking at overseas uh, culture and conflicts and post-conflict communities and that sort of work. That's absolutely fascinating. So. Was your undergraduate degree a psychology degree? Yes, I did actually join honours applied psychology and sociology, which I'm really grateful now as a social psychologist. I'm really grateful I had the sociology basis to my degree because um, I think that's always led me to look wider than just the sort of disposition of the person. You know, so I've always tried to look at more societal, social, political, economic factors that also drive behaviour, um, which is pretty critical when you're working in uh, UK government because you are looking at the the wider impact of lots of different sort of global influences. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a first degree in applied psychology and sociology, and then I did my masters at LSE in social psychology. Um, about oh gosh, about five years later. Wow, so quite a transition really from cockpits <laughs> to the wider context. Yeah. I think that shows, doesn't it, the diversity of what psychology means. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, that's the thing I've always loved is um, that, you know, my role was never um, a sort of traditional psychology chartership role. You know, I wasn't educational, I wasn't forensic, I was social. So it's much more sort of theory based approach to psychology. But I worked with clinical psychologists, I worked with forensic psychologists, but I also worked with anthropologists and behavioural economists. Um, and together, the team worked really well. And the psychology was sort of richer because you were using all these different tools and approaches from these different areas of psychology, which came together really nicely um, and sort of informed each other well. So I, I've never quite put all my sort of eggs into one basket, as it were. Um, And I really enjoy working in those multidisciplinary teams, which I've been very lucky to do my whole career so far. Mm. So you were at the MOD for quite a long time. Mm. Um, Was that kind of a more individual-based work role, or were you informing policy at that level? Yeah, much more policy support. So it was great because governments at that point, this is back in 2000, were much more aware of the need to engage both sort of behavioural and social sciences um, to understand the policy implications of what they were doing and to better inform 
their decisions, to better train their uh, armed forces, to better understand the experiences the armed forces are having. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at being based in Helmand province, understanding the sort of social, psychological, contextual differences between what a, you know, a forward operating base is going to experience alongside, you know, the traditions and expectations and perceptions of Afghans is really, really important. Um, and, you know, especially so when you're trying to minimise uh, confrontation and maximise sort of, you know, peacemaking and, and reconciliation and those sorts of things, which were, you know, much more sort of drive of, of defence probably in this century uh, than it has been in the last. Mm. I mean, I know a little bit about that world, as people that listen to this podcast will know, because of my husband's job, but also because I served in the intelligence corps um, as a reservist for a few years. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering, actually, if our work could have overlapped at some point, yeah, I didn't even know. Um, <laughs> but um, it strikes me that there would be significant challenges being a psychologist in that environment, as well as an awful lot of opportunity. Mm. So what were some of the challenges to your work back then? Gosh, um, do you know, they were pretty far and wide. You probably do a whole podcast on. <laughs> First of all, there weren't many of us. So, um, you know, whenever you're trying to bring a new discipline into a very well-established world, you have to prove your worth. You're pretty much swimming upstream the whole time. You'll have a couple of people who are willing to be ambassadors for what you do. But effectively, you know, psychology, even now and certainly then, still had that sort of soft science um, brand attached to it where people would sort of say oh, you know it's all very nice and sort of tree huggy and soft but does it really get things done um, so you had to make sure that you could deliver that you could show that your work was um, important and valid but also that it was good sort of empirical evidence-based stuff you know there's a lot of you know, pop psychology out there and you know people might do a two-week course here there or the other way and, and be in the military or working in defense and think oh I understand this I understand personality or I understand culture or I understand decision making um, and we had to make sure that everything we did was properly informed and ethical and you know abided by all the all the same guidelines and regulations that would guide any other psychology practice um, so we had to set up um, you know, sort of professional development streams, which weren't there originally, you know, so we had to really start from scratch. So that, that was a big challenge, but also that was also a great part of it. You're, you know, I, I was the only one to begin with. I think the team was about 20 at its strength. Um, and I think we really did make a difference and also, you know, bring psychology into the world where it was really going to have an impact. And, and you know, I, as an academic, half-headed academic at the moment doing my PhD, you know, I'm always keen, and as an applied psychologist, that we use psychology to make a positive difference in the world. And, and so, you know, that was the challenge. And I think we rose that. I think people still are as more and more psychologists and behavioural scientists and, and, you know, people of, of the social sciences come into work in government. They're realising that it has a real um, validity and is really valued. And I've seen that growing over 20 years, which is a really nice thing to um, have been a part of. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that difficult though the challenges are, the impact that you can have at that level, even if you don't win every battle, yeah. it's it's the fact that you're there and that you've been there chipping yeah. away yes. and introducing that psychological thinking where perhaps there are a lot of people that are predisposed to run headlong in yeah. certain situations. Yeah. And sometimes it is about, you know, it's not even just the, the content of the psychology as a science, but the approach that psychologists take, you know, the, the practices of 
you know, being more reflexive about, you know, why did I make that judgment? You know, what's mm. informing that assumption? Um, you know, managing people, managing teams, you know, having to use some of the psychology we've learned to think about how do you operate in inter- interdisciplinary teams when you're overseas? And certainly my when I was doing my thesis at LSE, my work was about, you know, what practical tools can you use to understand different cultures just after warfare? Um, outside a mosque with a, with a questionnaire and ask people you know these things don't make sense you know we have to think very carefully and sensitively about um you know how we collect data and that's always been a, an interest of mine which is now part of my phd research which is you know how do we make sense of this really difficult challenging and quite messy world but actually for me that's where the interesting story and data can be found but it doesn't always lend itself to nice straightforward theories and methods that are maybe more practical in in university laboratories or in you know among sort of postgrad students where you're using them as your subjects so um so they're, they're quite big challenges that the, the theory and the tools don't always fit and you've got to find a, a practical way to make sense of a world which is really challenging mm, but also such a great opportunity and yeah. so what kind of moved you on from that area of work why didn't you stay there forever well uh, partly because uh partly because i think i and you know i'm sure we'll come on to talk about identity later but i was probably worried i was going to lose my identity as a psychologist i'd moved up in in defense to the point where i'd sort of been told that unless i generalized and diversified a bit and became more of a sort of general manager i wouldn't go any further so I was probably, you know, looking down the barrel of doing helicopter procurement or something like that, which I thought not what I'm trained to do. <laughs> I love being a psychologist and I love working in this field. And so um, I got an opportunity to do some work with another government department, which um, I decided I would do by leaving the civil service and doing it independently. Um, at the same time, I was also I just got married starting a family so I was really aware I wanted more flexibility in how I worked and the direction of my career at that point I sort of felt I'd done enough in that bit that there was there was more to be done but probably in slightly more flexible ways. Mm, I think that's a point that a lot of us reach and we were talking about before we started recording actually weren't we that need for flexibility and it not always fitting with being an employee of an institution. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, but it takes a bit of time, I think, to get your confidence to know that you probably can take that next step and you will, it will be okay. I mean, you never quite believe it. <laughs> yeah, still don't <laughs> believe it. Now. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, you, you do need to, well, you need to get the practical experience and the guidance and all those great skills. Mm. Um, but there also comes a point where you want to be the master of your own fate and, and, and take things into your own hands and see what happens. And that's what makes it exciting as well. So once you took that leap, where did your career go after that? So um, I was very fortunate in that I worked uh, for the Foreign Office for a couple of years. And at that point, I decided to break slightly away with my uh, more sort of political psychology uh, background and, and get some more um, sort of slightly more traditional psychology skills. So I did uh, emotional intelligence for my, well, it's not, not called level A level B anymore, but it's, it's uh, uh, for the sort of psychometric administration. And I was really interested in that because I had seen through working in defence and also in other government departments that emotional intelligence was really important, you know, in terms of skills within, you know, dealing with different cultures and people from different backgrounds and different communities. And I was really fascinated in in terms of interpersonal skills. So um, I ended up doing 
and work and coaching in that area. And that's how I got into doing coaching, which was through helping people who were coming into government and maybe deploying overseas with embassies to, um, to build their self-awareness, their awareness of other people, to build their relation management skills, um, which all came under the umbrella of emotional intelligence. Um, and so I did that for a number of years before then going overseas with my husband uh, to Brazil for his work, um, which was great, a great opportunity. And, and it was during that time that I had the, the chance to start my PhD. And again, that was a, a chance to sort of say, right, what if I always really wanted to study in depth? And, um, you know, because the children were a little bit older and in school, again, you know, another sort of crossroads in the life where you can take these decisions. Um, I decided to use that opportunity to start a PhD, which is still ongoing. So, so tell us a bit about that then, because I, I love the fact that as psychologists, we can do the practical stuff and the academic stuff. Yeah. Um, but once you commit to a PhD, it's kind of like putting your stake in the ground, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. And that's probably what put me off doing it earlier, because I just, mm. there's no way I can manage a then decided to I was very interested on the basis of my master's degree in understanding what I'd call post-conflict communities so people who have been caught up in in conflict um but what happens next and it really struck me having um you know been sort of through the Iraq conflict in 2003 that there was a sense for community being sort of left behind, you know, a community that was sort of, of people who were were sort of slightly bewildered, who who weren't uh, in, in sort of traditional clinical psychology terms of traumatised, those who needed sort of frontline psychological services. Um, they weren't members of the armed forces, they were just the everyday men and women and children who were who were sort of innocent bystanders of, of these conflicts. And so I became really interested in uh, and I'd used social identity theory and the social identity approach a lot in, in all of my work and found it to be a really interesting model and theory to try and understand what it is that people experience when they have gone through a significant change or, or in the case of Iraq conflict and how does their identity affect the process of resilience and, and moving on and dealing with what has happened and planning and anticipating what is to come next. And so that question has always been with me. And, and when I was overseas, I got the opportunity to start by looking at, um, at social identity and well-being and resilience in relation to Syrian refugees. And I worked with Syrian refugees in Brazil um, uh, to, to start that research and start collecting that data. Mm, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I think often terms like resilience and identity I can find a little bit difficult because I, I can't work out what is tangible about mm. it but putting it into that context with that particular group yeah. makes it make a lot more sense to me rather than sort of yeah. an abstract academic concept. Yeah exactly and I think um, you know there isn't much traditionally in, in the literature about um, social identity and resilience um, and yet, you know, when you start digging into it, you see it, it applies um, to everyday lived experiences. So, you know, Syrian refugees coming to a country like Britain or Brazil or Germany, um, you know, everything is thrown up into the air. Their, their whole sense of who they are, who they relate to, who they belong to, 
all the categories that define them, their language, their culture, their job, their family status, um, has all been thrown up in the air. Some of it's been lost, some of it's been severed, some of it's been left behind. And they're gradually trying to get a sense of self again in a new country. And so that identification process, trying to define who they are so they can start making the steps they need to make to be able to live a normal life or as normal as possible life um, is really interesting. So I often felt that identity was a sort of forerunner to many of the other psychological processes that people explore. So it's not it's not um, an alternative model, but it's really trying to put things in the context of, you know, should we let's start with identity and then move on to looking at other factors that may be enabling or disabling this person from managing significant change. Mm. And where do you see the practical application of that going in the future? Well, from in terms of my PhD, I'm hoping that a lot of the insights from the research would really help frontline refugee organisations. Um, part of my work, part of my work is working directly with refugees, listening to their stories and looking at social identity um, and how it's affecting their perceptions and responses to what they call post-migration stress, so day-to-day stresses, trying to get your children into school, trying to find a, a job, trying to, to grasp a language. Um, but uh, also it's about the way in which the society or community they come into position them so how do we talk to refugees you know, we talk we, we label them first of all refugees so there's a very significant categorization process going on there um, but the way that we engage and communicate and build these um, labels around different refugee groups has a big impact on their psychological functioning it it, it shapes the way that they are able to move on or, or not and so hopefully by drawing the attention of refugee organisations to that, they can start to think about the way in which they engage either through their leaflets, their frontline desks, their refugee field workers. Um, so they can be more aware of the sort of two way process between it's not just on the refugee to cope and survive and thrive. It's also on us creating systems and processes and engagement strategies that allow them to do that. And I think that learning and that teaching is something that will hopefully come out of the PhD. So that's on the, on the, on the refugee side. Mm, and I wonder if there's something about um, enlightening, you know, those of us who, who care um, and who maybe have some expertise in psychology or therapy, um giving us that push almost to campaign when we see things that we know are probably unhelpful uh, like I'm sure you know this isn't a political podcast but there have been some unhelpful terminologies used in the news in the past couple of weeks um that are labels that would seem to be unhelpful and actually giving us some theoretical clout as why we might protest about that or um call the government to account for it um and yeah, that's really useful. Yes, exactly. And it is, it's making people, you know, because sometimes we don't realise we're doing it or even it's it's born out of good intention. Mm, but we end, up, we end up impeding somebody's ability to be okay and feel well. You know, our, our desperate attempt to um, make sure that their well-being is supported. Maybe the strategy isn't quite right or maybe it's having a different effect. Um, and so, you know, I'm trying to hopefully add a an extra perspective into the field to support refugees. You'll see the great work's been done by clinical psychologists and practitioners working frontline services dealing with, you know, it's a huge amount of trauma and um, and certainly a lot of clinical interventions needed. But there's, you know, hundreds and thousands of people who wouldn't meet a sort of 
clinical criteria for help, mm. but nonetheless could really do with the insights of psychology to help them and help the people around them build a better life. And I think that's where, you know, I've never worked in a sort of clinical world. I've always worked uh, outside of that. But I do see that there's a, there's a huge amount of value that we could add to that, to that world. And I think it would be great to get psychology to do more in that space. Mm, definitely definitely and I think it's so interesting to hear you talk about that interplay really between research and application and has it always been easy and natural for you to kind of weave those two together? Um, That's an interesting question I've never really thought about it in terms of I've never really thought about it in terms of either or Um, I tend to get a little bit frustrated on both sides so you know, if, I, if I'm in a very sort of academic debate, I will feel that we're out of touch with reality. And then sometimes, you know, you could be working in a very practical, you know, in middle of West Africa or the Balkans or Iraq, and you know that they need much more empiricism and much more sort of robust, valid tools. And so I'm always trying to pull the two together. Um, but I think that's the space I've always really enjoyed. It's It's making... It's not allowing the, the theory to lose touch with reality, but at the same time, making sure when we try and help reality, we are doing it um, in a way that uses, you know, good, valid, robust means to do it. And so that's a space I've, I've always really enjoyed. It's not necessarily easy, <laughs> and it would be much easier to maybe just step into one camp or the other. Mm. <laughs> but um, but I think that's a, that's the challenge that I enjoy is trying to to solve that puzzle or, or at least contribute to the puzzle somehow. Yeah, because I think in times of stress, particularly, it's it's easy to fall into one camp or the other. I think I've been in in both camps at times. Um, but actually, as a psychologist, one of our skills is reflection and stepping back. And yeah, perhaps that's a role that we can take up more often. Absolutely. And I think, you know, maybe it's also because of my background being a social psychologist is it, 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 it never makes sense of me to look at anything psychological without looking at it in terms of the social influences around it, be it social categories, be it the culture, be it the politics, be it, you know, you know, I, I fundamentally believe that we are social animals and, you know, we have, we therefore can't really understand the psychology of people if we don't look at that more systemic um, picture. And so it always makes sense to to make sure that those theories are brought back into touch with, you know, the context. What is actually happening now in this moment for this person? Mm. So that makes a lot of sense of kind of the broad work that you do kind of in the applied side and on the research side. But I'm really interested in your coaching work as well. So presumably that is kind of one to one personal work. Yes. Yeah. So I've really enjoyed doing that. And partly it can, so. Partly it's um, a function of wanting to uh, align my own identities. I wanted to, when I left the civil service, what I didn't want to do and what I found myself doing, I'm sure people do, is try and be all things to all people. You know, be be a hands-on mum, be a wife, uh, be a psychologist, be an academic, be a good friend. And, you know, as I sort of read more and more about social identity, I realised that the greater the compatibility, the greater the sort of, sort of smooth running between those different identities the easier life is so I knew that from my PhD research I wanted to do some coaching work that drew the best practice out of my PhD research and allowed me to um, take that and use it in a coaching context that would also make sense for running a business 
So as I'm doing my PhD research and learning about identity change and you know, getting these incredible insights from you know, people who've experienced significant change and transition, I'm developing a, a sort of an approach to coaching, which I call identity-based coaching, which looks at um, using that as a basis to enable people to deal with change or transition in their day-to-day life. So it's one-to-one, but it adopts a very um, social identity-based approach, which is looking at all the different identities that are operating in that person's life and looking at the challenges or goals or changes that have happened and have implications for those different identities. Mm. that sounds absolutely fascinating and actually like a space that I don't think many people are occupying I've certainly not when I've typed in coaching to Google I haven't come across many people offering that sort of approach yeah no yeah I haven't either and I think you know I think some coaches or certainly you know clinicians I've spoken to would adopt a systemic approach you know they would look at sort of the whole person and the systems within which that person operates but in terms of specifically social identity looking at how we define ourselves by virtue of our relationships with other people and the the social norms that influence our behavior there isn't much there and when I was doing my training in cognitive behavior coaching um I thought you know this is great you know and I really am a big fan of the cognitive behavioral approach in, in in all its different applications but it always left me with the question of you know which particular you know, why is that belief more salient than another? Because, you know, if you look at it from identity, different um, perspectives, different beliefs are going to be more salient at different times, depending on which identity is operating. So, you know, we're going to therefore respond and, well, perceive and respond to stresses or challenges in different ways, depending on which identity is most salient at that particular time. And what I found from doing a lot of my original coaching on emotional intelligence is that I would find myself always going back and thinking which which identity is is sort of salient at this point in time for this person. And also when I'm talking to them as a as a coachee, you know, where are they sitting? Which identity is more salient by virtue of the fact their kids are just outside the room or they've just, you know, they've just started their new business and they're sitting in their box fresh office and it's a whole new profession. You know, so all these identities are operating all the time. And it's really important to take that into consideration when we're looking at the challenges people are facing. And I think to overlook it is um, you know, it's, it's a big omission because it plays such an important part in how we perceive what's going on in our lives and how we respond to those changes and challenges. Mm, I, yeah, I really agree with that. And I think that there's a part of um, ACT therapy, which is the therapy that I use most often, which is called the observing self, which right. is about recognising all the different roles that you take up and that you cannot, in essence, be any of those roles mm-hmm. because you are all of them. <laughs> Um, and weirdly, I think it's the part that gets neglected the most often in right. therapy, because often it's difficult for people to understand or make sense of when they're in crisis. So I'll definitely always introduce it, but sometimes I back off it um, until the end when they're a little bit more well and have got some of the skills that they need. Um, but actually, it's the most important bit. And it's yeah. a bit that brings the most um, lasting change, I think, in people's lives often. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's partly a function of sort of Western society that we are quite reductionist in our thinking. You know, we tend to boil everything down to the disposition of the individual. You know, we think of ourselves as so uh, sort of disparate from other people, you know, in our psychology and our problems and our perspectives all reside within us. But in many ways, you know, we are very much a reflection of the context we're in, the relationships we have, 
the norms we're adhering to, the influences of people around us. And so if we fail to look at those and where they're coming from and which ones we're adopting and which ones we're rejecting or how it's making us see other people who are not like us, we fail to see all these day-to-day influences on our own perceptions and behaviour. So we can try and make a change at an individual level, but it doesn't survive contact with the enemy because you know the moment they step out of their house or they walk into a new workplace or they become a parent or whatever the change is, they are immediately... Um, you know, immersed in all these different social categories and social definitions. And if we don't address them, we don't properly give people the skills to, um, to create, you know, enduring change or, or, or give them the perspective to recognise that they exist beyond themselves. You know, they exist by virtue of their social relationships. Um, and, and also that those are enormously helpful. You know, those relationships are, are resources that we can draw from. And they provide us with support and information and validity and self-esteem and all these things, which, which I think really can help people realise that um, they're not having to do it all on their own. This isn't just an individual thing. We're all a product of our social world. And if we see that, there's a great opportunity there in, in drawing on that to help us manage these difficult times or these challenges that we're facing, positive or negative. Mm, it just sounds so important. And I think you know hopefully that approach you might be able to train other people up in it and, yeah, <laughs> and it yeah. further. Yeah. well I, so I work one of the things I've done because so I do this individual coaching but one of the things I've been working with um over the last sort of well probably since starting with PhD but more in a more sort of practical way now is trying to do that within organizations and um, identity within teams and organisations and I've teamed up with um, a, a wonderful colleague called Sandy Bukowski who runs um, a collective um, called Making Change Happen and together uh, she's an organisational psychologist we've been looking at using a social identity approach to help teams sort of map the different identities that are operating in that in the space that they occupy and looking at the sort of in-out group differences that are emerging, where they want to be and how they want to see themselves and, and give them a different perspective to help them manage changes in the workplace. Um, and so we're working on that at the moment and trialling it with different organisations and trying to collect more data on it. Um, so it's quite nice to see it open up in that space, which is much more sort of oxide sort of world. But again, you know, when I've talked to occupational psychologists, there aren't many using a social identity approach. You know, it hasn't really quite got into that space so I'm hoping that that can provide some you know real utility for uh, for the sort of business world which would be wonderful. Yeah because that was going to be my next question actually was I could see on your website that you do kind of business consultancy and leadership development that kind of a role um, and I was wondering how you sort of broke into that how you transitioned into it. Yeah so the, so um, partly when we got back from Brazil um, I decided to sort of take a bit more of a step into the world of, of sort of business and industry, which, you know, isn't my background. So it was like, oh, this is a bit overwhelming. Um, and suddenly having to do all the networking and, and things. And so it was through, you know, existing friends of mine who work in business, as business psychologists, but also former colleagues of mine from um, defence. So a very good um, friend of mine, Bob Judson, who I worked with at the MOD, um, he and I were looking at leadership, developing leadership approaches um, and using this sort of social identity because there's a lot of work that's been done on, on sort of identity leadership and looking at leadership as a form of, um, of, of 
leadership as a way to manage and influence and engage and motivate teams. So um, through him and through working with Sandy, um, who I met through, there was a series of seminars at uh, MNC Saatchi where they were looking at organisational change. Um, I met her purely by, by you know, good fortune um, and started having conversations um, about you know, the social identity approach. And I think because it was sort of new and different, it sort of gets people's attention because they're like, oh, I've not really heard of that. And what is it and how does it work? Um, and I think because I'm doing using it in my PhD, I feel reassured that I'm really up close to all the research in the literature, you know, and it's and therefore I feel like I'm I'm keeping it on track by applying a bit, researching a bit, keeping and my supervisor, um, Professor John Drury at Sussex University is, you know, I'm so lucky to have him as my supervisor because he is, you know, um, incredibly eminent in this field of social identity. Um, you know, having his um, guidance and advice really helps me be assured that what I'm taking out to the marketplace is good science, you know, and that's really important to me. So I don't feel like I'm just going out there with a sort of interesting concept that might work or might not, because it's, it's constantly being reviewed and checked and written about and researched. And then Sandy and I or Bob and I will have a conversation about how we can use it out in the real world. So again, it's that, it's that balance between um, sort of research and practice, which I really, really enjoy. Mm, and I guess it helps with, because you mentioned that networking bit and from the limited experience I have working with businesses, that networking is so important but Mm. having the confidence to talk about what you do in those settings where you know I'm talking about when we could network face to face and it was a few pencil skirts and shoulder pads in the room and (laughs) and um, often that we can feel quite de-skilled in those settings Mm. or certainly I do sometimes knowing that you've got that grounding that you know the research inside and out I imagine that's really helpful when you're pitching in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a part, partly I think it really helps when you say to people, well, I've always worked in psychology. I'm a, you know, it's, it's an interesting field, you know, so people often are engaged by just by virtue of the fact that you're a psychologist and you've worked in interesting places, whether it's in business or clinical or, you know, wherever else. Um, but also I think, you know, if you're, if you're sticking with the learning and development in some way shape or form so when I've done coaching courses or my um or my level a level b you meet lots of other people of different backgrounds and so just by being in a learning environment whether it's university or online courses you're constantly meeting people who are really interesting and really connected or you know have an interesting idea or point you to an interesting article and before you know it you're sort of you know that sort of um snowball effect is taking place so I think one of the the most important thing to me when I left the civil service was continuing to learn and develop. And I love that. I mean, I, I love learning anyway, but I think, um, you know, not just sort of going out going right. So, you know, I've got two degrees in psychology and that's me done. It's, it was the fact that there's so many other interesting things to do. And by going on those courses and meeting people, it's actually, that's a great way of networking and, and actually, you know, you're not having to walk into too many corporate scary environments. You're actually networking through relatively familiar places where your interests are aligned by virtue of the fact you're, you're all on this course together or you're all mm-hmm. studying at the same university so I think that really really helps and it gives you the chance to build real connection with people because I've yeah. talked a lot on this podcast about if you can do that then you can learn what people need and you can learn to provide it yeah. um but you yeah. can't do that if you're so anxious that you're not listening 
<laughs> no, exactly. And I think, you know, going out with a curious mind and knowing that it's okay not to know everything. Like you're not, people aren't expecting you to be the person with all the answers to their business problems or their, you know, health problems or whatever else. But you have enough to be able to get a conversation going and you can learn a lot from them. And that constant curiosity, I think, is what makes it interesting and also makes you open to other perspectives. So, you know, there's, there's so much that's changed in psychology since I graduated. Um, and I learned so much from my clinical colleagues who are friends, who are practitioners. Um, and I would, and I love that. I love the fact there's a new tool or approach or coaching approach or something that you think, oh, that's great. I didn't know that. I'm going to add that in or, or it's a great, or you can critique it and think about it in different ways. Um, so, yeah, and I, I guess that, well, I hope anyway, that will just continue. I don't ever anticipate the point where you just stop learning. <laughs> yeah, I would hope not. I can only see that being bad for a psychologist yeah, to stop learning. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so it sounds like you've had a lot of really varied experience, but there have been these threads that run through that yeah. make it all a cohesive picture. Mm. Um, so along that journey then, what has been the most surprising or inspiring moment, if you had to pick one? Gosh, um, inspiring or surprising? Um, do you know, it's hard, it is hard to say. I mean, the inspiration comes from all over the place. I mean, I've been very fortunate to work in some really um, sort of high profile in the sense that, you know, you, you really feel like when you're in Iraq or you're in West Africa or wherever, you know, that... This is, this is real. This is happening right now. Um, and these people's lives are being changed or, or, or you could potentially give some advice or insight that could make things slightly better. And so that's, that's part of um, the inspiration, I think, is from being in the real world um, and, and recognising that there's a real role to play in making a change. Um, and then I think also, you know, there have been times where you, you know, it's, I think it's scary when you're the only psychologist around the table or you're the only person giving a briefing um, and you know that you've got something really valuable to say and you say it and you, and you know that that's going to add some unique insight or that could change the, the course of someone's decision making. And that's quite exciting, but also nerve wracking because the weight and the um, responsibility you hold as a person offering that advice and expertise is really significant. So, um, but I, I, I like being in the real world for that reason, I think, because it's, it's making a, a big, well, hopefully it's making a big difference. And I think, you know, that's on a sort of macro level. And then when I, you know, working with refugees in, in Brazil, you know, just the privilege of hearing some of their stories um if you know you know families coming from Aleppo and Damascus and um you know to to be in a position where someone is willing to share their story with you and being able to hopefully echo that and represent that story in a wider environment so that their story isn't just something they keep to themselves and no one hears it but it has a powerful you hope you have a sort of amplifying effect where you can through your research take that insight and somehow share it so it can make a difference to help people like them or, or, or people like them in the future and I think that's that's the sort of motivation for it and, and the inspiration. Mm, 
It sounds really, really powerful. So selfish questions really coming up. (laughs) (laughs) But what two action steps would you want psychologists and therapists who are listening to this now to go away and do? So um, I think, I mean, this is a selfish answer, I guess, in some ways. I really, I just, I think people who work in a psychologist who work in in this uh, in related areas should or if they've got the opportunity could go and just read up on social identity theory not immerse themselves in massive textbooks you know there's some great um uh links online where you can look at you know i think it's like two minutes with steve reicher talking about at the university of St Andrews about what social identity theory is um there's been quite a lot of of um, social identity theory approach in relation to COVID and coronavirus and having an impact there. So you can you can very quickly see how some of this stuff has made a difference. And I would just invite people to, if they don't really know what identi- social identity approach is, to just have a read about it. There's um, a brilliant book that came out by um, Alex Haslam and colleagues about two years ago called The New Psychology of Health. And I think for any, and I, I always, um, I gave it to two clinical colleagues in Brazil because um, I really think if anybody is working in a clinical context, um, understanding the really uh, significant research that's coming out on the how social identity impacts health and ageing and resilience and dealing with change is fascinating. And the implications that has for, for therapy and for suggested interventions is really important. So that's probably, I can't really think of what the second one is. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I would, really, I would also invite people to give me their views you know because I think it's because this is quite a new area and I'm applying it to coaching and other areas I'd be really keen to just have more discussion on that um and you know I, I really love having this con I don't want to just get myself into a bubble with other social psychologists I want to to make sure I have these conversations with other psychologists of all different flavors to just see you know how does how does that approach sort of resonate with with what you do does it have a place does it have utility um so yeah I'm sure there are so many people after listening to this that are going to go and get that book (laughs) I'm one of them I was just writing it down like must do that now yeah yeah it's 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 really great and there's lots of um lots of good stuff that's come out on on sorts you know related areas uh over the last few years so um it's and it's a fascinating field because it's all very applied so everything from you know managing emergency services crowd behavior which is very much the work of you know my supervisor John Drury um and you know a lot of the work Alex Alex Haslam Steve Reicher um Jolanta Jess and all these you know quite incredible psychologists social psychologists have done in this field it's really fascinating because it's all very applied and has real world implications um as I say right up to the sort of recent issues with COVID and how you know we've responded to that in terms of you know being collectives and, and sort of the social identity factors there I think it's really interesting, actually, that pretty much everybody has to cover this in undergraduate psychology. But I don't think it factors at all in my clinical training. I don't think in three years of a clinical doctorate we ever talked about social identity theory. Um, When now you're talking about it, it's just so obviously relevant. Um, (laughs) And I think it it has come into my head as a clinician, um, possibly because academically I lean that way a little bit. Um, but I could easily see how it wouldn't. Um, 
so yeah anything anything we can do to bring those two together and and get conversation going about how those of us working clinically can bring that into our clinical practice yes absolutely and I I think it's you know that's that's the thing I, I enjoy most being a psychologist and is you know, not allowing it to become too stovepiped into dif- different disciplinary worlds where, you know, you're one thing or another, because the best insights come out from bringing different disciplines within psychology together mm. um, and recognising that, you know, clinical psychology affords great insights into, you know, how people are responding to, you know, social changes, you know, and understanding things like depression and anxiety, you know, which many of which have social um uh, sort of variables, you know, driving them or influencing them. And equally, social psychology has so much to inform us about, you know, how that impacts on people and, and therefore also draws our eye to where the interventions are. And as I say, it doesn't always rest with the disposition of the person. It often is looking at it more systemically and looking at the relationships and the systems and the societies we operate in and looking at psychological changes that can be made for the benefit of the individual or the group that actually reside in policy change or you know, different changes in social behaviour, which are really important. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about the learning disability space, because that was where I worked in the NHS and my research, um, where I did bring in um, social identity theory was around Mm. normalisation and the the policies that were in place that were potentially a bit harmful um, around categorising people and and all of that. I think I think it's it's really it's really fascinating. I think because we live and breathe these social categories every day, mm. um, we often fail to notice them um, explicitly until they're overtly drawn to our attention. And you know, you just need to look at the Black Lives Matter movement recently. You know, which is you know constantly it has been an issue, but sometimes it takes the news headlines to draw our attention to it. And then we we need to, and it's important that we stop and question how we engage with each other, talk to each other. Um, sort of define each other and position each other by virtue of these categories that we're using without questioning where they've come from or whether they're actually having a harmful impact on how we're engaging with one another or causing uh, problems um, either to the individual or to the societies. Mm. So it sounds like I've got the next book lined up for (laughs) the therapy book club. So heads up to people listening that's probably what we're going to do um because the last book that we read was um about anti-racism it was why i'm no longer talking to white people about race by um rennie edo lodge and this seems like a really useful follow-up um from that yeah absolutely no i'd really i think it's uh you know, it, and again, that's why I'm really drawn to this space because I think it, it has really important, you know, immediate problems um, that are drawn to our attention that we need to think about. What do we have? You know, can we help in this space as psychologists, as you know, sort of social scientists and practitioners, um, and also to just hold the mirror up to ourselves and make sure that you know are our practices and approaches and ethics in line and not perpetuating these problems. You know, can we be honest about what we're doing or how we go about our daily work? Um, because you know it's it's about having some of those honest conversations as well and I think that social identity approach really allows it's, it gives us a, a framework or a language to, to discuss that as psychologists mm. and hopefully translate it for non-psychologists as well in, in a slightly more digestible form. Mm. 
So final question, um, which really is very selfish. <laughs> but who else, if, you, if I could get anybody, who would you like to see interviewed on this podcast? Gosh, um, I mean, there's loads of people, really. I mean, you know, selfishly, again, from my point of view, I think if you could get any of the sort of eminent social identity theorists on, like, you know, my supervisor or Steve Reich or Alex Hadlam or Catherine Hadlam, um, you know, that would be great because I think it would be great to continue a conversation about mm. um, how important and interesting this area is. Um, who else? That's a good question. I think, um, yeah, there's a, I mean, recently I was very fortunate to do a, um, a workshop with Claudia Hammond, who presents All in the Mind on Radio 4, because she's a professor of public understanding of psychology at Sussex University. And, you know, it, there's so many amazing, well, she's written a really interesting book recently called, I think it's The Art of Rest, which is looking at, um, you know, how we all need to sort of slow down a bit and recharge and looking at the different ways in which we do that, whether it's mindfulness or reading books or gardening. And I think that's, so she and her role is really interesting in terms of the role she's got because the public understanding of psychology is really important um, and making sure that what we do is um you know, easy to understand by the general public is is critical. Uh, but also, I think that Johanna just read her book, you know, that would, and maybe another one from a book group. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of books out, you know, like Matt Walker's book on, um, you know, sleep, the, the science of sleep and dreams. Um, you know, a lot about how we need to look after ourselves in order to be our best possible selves. Um, so she would be a good candidate, I think. Mm. well I'll try <laughs> that's all I can do eventually yeah. I'm sure I'll get there um okay so finally then I'm sure loads of people are going to want to look you up after this so mm. where is the best place for them to find you so my website susievalentine.com is has everything about me including my a link to contact me um so they're more than welcome uh to contact me that way uh, I'm also on twitter um or as uh, sc valentine and um yeah they're more than happy for them to contact me susievalentine at gmail.com my profile's also at the sussex university website so um you can look up my sort of research group and if people are interested in the wider research that's going on at sussex and um, the crowds and identity group that i belong to um there's some really fantastic research going on there everything from the work my supervisor is doing um sort of crowds and, and emergency services through to survivors of the Grenfell Tower fire you know really good stuff so there's lots there as well um but you know please get in touch um I do offer coaching obviously it's online at the moment um but uh the work I offer is for people who are you know looking for change or managing change going through change so whether it's people changing jobs dealing with life you know, post-COVID or in the in the transition of this this year where everything's a little bit unknown, new parents, people retiring, you know, anything where there's a then their identity might be implicated in the changes that they're going through, then you know, if I can help, more than happy to. That sounds absolutely fascinating and like wonderful work that you're doing across the board. Thank you so much for talking to us about it. It's been really inspiring and given me loads to think about. Um, so I'm going to put all of those links in the show notes so that everyone else can follow up just like I'm going to with the stuff that's interested them. Lovely. Thanks, Rosie. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Planning on launching something new? Hoping to reach more people and build a business that lets you live your values while avoiding burnout? 
then you need to download my cheat sheet, 14 Steps to a Simple Launch. It's a foolproof process to make sure you develop your project with the people you want to help and then get it in front of as many of them as possible. It's totally free and you can find it at psychologist.drosie.co.uk. I'll put the link in the show notes.